Okay. Yeah. I think I'm recording now. Stay safe, stay sane. If you listen to this podcast series regularly, you'll be used to the duration being around 20 minutes. But this one is a bit different and a bit longer. So if you usually listen on headphones when out walking, you may want to go for a longer walk for this episode. I'm Mark Quinn. This is Stay Safe, Stay Sane from the seaside town of Bray, talking at a safe distance to people from all over the world as we continue to experience these unusual times. In 1976, I used to go and watch a great band play absolutely brilliant rhythm and blues music on a Friday night in what is now called the Martello on the seafront here in Bray. Back then, the hotel was called the Bray Castle and the band were the Boomtown Rats. A year later, imagine my joy, they were on top of the pops on BBC in the British charts with Looking After number one. Now, as we all know, the Boomtown Rats lead singer is Bob Geldof, who's not shy about expressing his views. So you can expect the odd expletive as you listen to our chat about everything from music to COVID to lockdown. I'm one of the lucky ones. You know, I'm well aware that I don't have three children and live in a high rise in a two bedroom flat you know mm. so it's it's very different as you know so many of the figures have pointed out like it's you know the the less well off who are doing far worse both mentally and physically so it, it sounds as if there's a guilt involved in that there's not it's just that it's not a particular struggle for me i mean my job allows for this you know if i choose to i can write some tunes, I can send them up to the other guys to work on them, uh, you know, stuff like that. But the reality is that actually uh, just stuff I've been putting off for years, I've got around to doing. So, uh, you know, it's been fun. I mean, what killed it really for me was that the Rats had a new record coming out on the exact day that the lockdown was declared. I know, uh, I know. And the film as well, and, and the book and everything. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so you're working, you know, flat out towards a given date, um, you know, really hard. There's a, a film about the band and uh, a book of all the lyrics that I had to write the essays for, and the editing of the film, and you know, writing the songs, recording the songs, mixing the songs, and, you know, come the big day, and fuck me, you know, yeah. <laughs> everything is stillborn. That's very frustrating, and it's a moot point. I don't want to stretch the um, the analogy, but, you know, the album is at best on life support in the intensive care unit, and it's a moot point as to whether <laughs> it can be resuscitated at the end. Of all this, you know. All right. <laughs> it's not too bad. We got the, the film which premiered in Dublin, as as you know. Um, it's uh, it's going to be on BBC in the next uh, week or two. Saturday week, I think it's on. Um, so, you know, all that sort of thing. So, yeah, I can work is my point. But what I should have been doing was touring and, you know, getting the new songs out there and, and things like that. that. That's been my job for as long as I can remember. And so to, so like everybody else, to have that stop dead 
is, is a pain. Mm, absolutely. And uh, have you learned any new skills like cooking or DIY or gardening or anything like that? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, but I was always well versed in, in <laughs> I bet. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> And what about, are you saying that you're writing songs, Bob? Yeah, like, I mean, do you, do you feel it's a good time to write or, you know, just curious about that? Uh, it's a good question. Um, it's And I think it's because there's a sort of enforced indolence about all of mm. this. It's sort of like every day's a Sunday. It's guilt-free um, that you're doing nothing because it's mandated that you do literally nothing. Mm. And that allows me not to feel guilty. Like, I panic if I'm not frantically busy. Literally, like, you know, I need I need to be frantically busy. And, you know, come Saturday and Sunday, it's been drilled into me that that's when it's okay not to work. However, being in a band, of course, most of your gigs are over a weekend, but most weekends would not be gigging. You know, I mean, I suppose you do. I don't know what we do now, you know, 50, 60 gigs a year or something. But I'm allowed not to do anything in this lockdown, which I find liberating. You know, uh, I've been able to, as I say, get on and do the stuff that I've been putting off or needed to do around the house, like, you know, I suppose lots of other people. But the days pass, I mean, very quickly. Mm, they do, yeah. And I'm not sure why exactly they do, but, you know, uh, my family is here, my daughters and their husbands. Obviously, I try and avoid them as much as possible, albeit the fact that one of them is in this room with me now trying to fix my telly because he's quite good at that. And, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how much of this is a common experience. I'm well aware that uh, we're very lucky. But, uh, yeah, on a scale of 1 to 10, then, how concerned are you for, like, yourself and your own health? Oh, zero, um, uh, which, again, sounds um, complacent. It's not that at all. It's that, we, you know, we're taking it very seriously. You'd be nuts not to. And uh, I've been around quite a few pandemics in my time, you know, like, uh, obviously... I lived through the very beginning of AIDS, up to the, up to the, in fact, I was in New York when, at the time that they actually first twigged that there was something weird going on. And then there was that thing that everybody thought it was just a gay thing. I suppose callously, if you weren't gay, people kind of went few. And then it turned out that everybody got this thing. And there was, I remember the mass panic especially, you know, if you were young and out there shagging and stuff like that. Uh, I remember people being very scared. And then in Africa, you know, where the AIDS epicenter was and is, you know, trolling through that. And then, uh, you know, of course, you know, many of us are old enough to remember SARS and MERS. And, and then I was in Africa for a good part of the Ebola thing, which was the Band Aid 30 record, I think. And then, um, you know, I kind of know the plot. I, I've had to wear masks and hazmats and, and stuff like that in my time. And it's it's just not funny. It really isn't. Like, it, it isn't something that can be taken lightly. That The problem must be that you do slip into that complacency or, or irritation that you or I feel at, at beginning to feel at the lockdown. And, of course, if you don't live in your own house with a garden, that's even even worse you're you're desperate to get out and 
with the confusion of the messaging in the UK, which is absolutely appalling. People are just going out to hell with it. They're not. Most are taking it very seriously. But then there's others who sort of feel obliged not to, to say it's all nonsense. But as I say, I've been around these things enough to know that none of it is nonsense. And um, if it takes longer, which it will, I can't see, you know, we've rescheduled the RAS tour until October, November and tried to grab whatever dates are available from the theatres we are playing in. Of course, all those dates would have gone two years before, because theatres are booked two years in advance, especially coming up to Christmas, so we've had to scramble to try and get something. Mm -hmm. But even then, I very much doubt that anyone is going to be prepared to go to a place, a crowded bar or a crowded restaurant, much less a gig where there's people jumping around or etc. I'm not even sure that, you know, we could get a crew who are prepared to travel in close proximity and the band and in hotels, you know, push together every single day of the week and then in a physical environment where you're sweating and there's a crowd. I'm not sure that in my game that that's going to reactivate itself at least until mid-2021. So this is... This is a long shot and it's pointless getting irritated. You know, you've got to stay very focused and mentally alert. Yeah. Well, you've covered lots of things there. I mean, one of the things you mentioned there in terms of Africa, like I heard um, Bono recently talking about his concerns for Africa if the coronavirus gets a grip there. You know, it's a continent that obviously you know well. Obviously, you'd share those same fears, I expect, would you? I would. The, the, the weird thing, which I'm sure you've discussed and everyone who might be listening to this have thought, why isn't it? It's such a weird little fucker, this thing, you know. Um, it, it doesn't behave or seem to behave to any guaranteed characteristic that the scientists can get their fingers on. It presents in whole different ways with various different people. They don't come down with the same symptoms. Some have agonizing stomach pains. Some, of course, have the famous respiratory problems and inflamed lungs. Others have whole other symptoms. That's right, yeah. Not only that, so we thought at first that the old would be very vulnerable, which, of course, they are because they're old. But then again, you see uh, yesterday on the telly, not only the 101-year-old woman who died in a care home, but also her 25-year-old care worker who was looking after her both of the same thing. And at the beginning of this, we thought it was mainly old people. Now we know that males are, I think, uh, two-thirds more affected than females. So why? There's a lot of things we don't understand about this. One of them is incontinence where healthcare is at very best rudimentary. Why isn't it just, you know, zipped, ripped into the population wholly destructive? And if you look at India, and then there's the, the, the theory, well, maybe people who live in those continents are so exposed to a, a range of bacteria from a very early age because of their impoverishment, because of the uh, different hygiene methodologies and sanitations, maybe they, for some reason, may be more healthy and immune to this. I, I, I'm doubtful of that. It's just we don't know exactly what this thing truly is. And again, that inhibits then the, the, the research into a vaccine. And, uh, and of course, as soon as we get a vaccine, 
we forget about all this. People keep saying, will things ever go back to normal? Yes. Yeah, they will. We'll go back to, I mean, do you remember SARS? Because I remember the panic. Mm. And, uh, you know, do, do we really, are we really concerned about Ebola crossing the Mediterranean right now? Because we were. And uh, I think it'll go back. And I think, I don't think things will alter very much. In the UK, uh, the NHS will definitely be readdressed. I think care workers, that the cliche frontline workers, health workers will be paid more. But that'll all subside back into the sort of, uh, again, the complacency of, his, of existence. You know, we're alive. We live day to day. Let's let, let, let's get on with it. Uh, reviving the economy, that's going to be a hard one. Um, we've just come out of the years of austerity because of the Ponzi scheme that was the world economy in 2008, uh, literally just emerging from that. And of course, because of that, the health system was beaten down by a lack of funding. So when the virus came to many of the Western states, the health services weren't up to scratch. That'll probably all happen again. So I don't think there'll be any, you know, people say, what was it you did during the great pandemic of, you know, 2000? No one's going to fucking say that. But no one's even going to remember it. It'll be a weird lacuna in our lives, you know, this sort of pause in the everyday. We will forget just how fragile a little thing we are. So, so you're you're cynical then about us changing for the better or any of that kind of stuff or, or changing the way we think about, you know, the planet and all that kind of stuff as a consequence of this. I'm not a cynic, I'm a sceptic. And scepticism is based on experience. We've been here before, not as immediate. There isn't the immediacy of, of the now. You know, I, I think it's a very, again, privileged position to say, look, Mother Nature... She is telling us what is wrong with us. She has she has righted herself. You know all this. That's um, I'm very dubious about that way of thinking for a start. You know, it is great that the skies are clear. It is great that the water runs free and pure. But there we will go hell for leather to revitalize the economy because the argument increasing the four is lives versus livelihood. And the balance is, as you see in the in, in nearly every state affected, is where does the the R the famous R number tip so that the risk to life can be balanced against the need to preserve the livelihood, and so that's why you get the gradual coming out of lockdown uh, equation. And um, what happens after that is that people will, very few, I think, will readdress their lives and say, do you know what, I've been in Egypt up to now, uh, I've dedicated my life to my career, and look at what I've lost. I've lost all this precious time looking out the window and gazing at nature and smelling the roses and appreciating my ch children. Bollocks. They'll be back there, and the, the chimney stacks will be pumping again, and I can't see that the world economy is going to do anything other than try and pick up where it left off. I'm not sure we're prepared to accept less of a lifestyle. And if you're not earning money, that is by definition. The government will not keep paying for people's wages because where does the government get the money from taxpayers? If you're not working, there's no tax 
fund to pay. So that's not going to continue for very much longer. So, no, I think there's an awful lot of guff talked about that. But that isn't being cynical. It's just reading the rooms that we've read before. So there's some experience. Mm, okay. And you mentioned Boris there and uh, his latest suggestions, which seem ludicrous to me that he, they only apply to England and not other parts of the UK. And like, do you look on at Ireland, for example, uh, with admiration? Because it seems to me that things have been handled much better here in a much more measured way. Yes, I do. Um, you know, I was talking at length with... Um, you know, our mutual friend uh, Bono yesterday on the blower for his birthday. You know, we, we spoke most of the afternoon. And uh, one of the things was, um, you know, the way Ireland has, has handled this. And uh, I mean, it's, it's a leadership issue. I mean, it, it genuinely is. I mean, and then there's the maturity of the population and how how they feel bound together to deal with this in the collective sense. And we've seen that essential maturity over the last, specifically, you know, 10, eight years with the referenda, with the way that these things have been argued. You know, there's a seriousness about, I mean, I don't, I, I think you need to be Irish and outside Ireland to get it. Like, as you know, I'm not misty eyed about this at all. Mm. But there's a, there, is a, there is a seriousness and a maturity about Irish society that I, I find lacking here since, you know, the whole Brexit thing. I don't want to bring that into this, but it elected a government that I believe is wholly incapable. Um, I think this is a truly an appalling government. And I think that Boris Johnson is, is essentially a fraud. I think he's been exposed for, you know, as being incapable. He's a blowhard, you know, and uh, he got a he got out of jail card because of his girlfriend's pregnancy and then him coming down with the virus. And whereas, you know, I do have political differences with many people, I in no way ever wish them a personal harm. Of course, yeah, of course. No matter how much we differ. Yeah. And so I was genuinely glad for his recovery. But um, it, it goes to the fact that, of course, they're listening to uh, Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance, the uh, science and medical people. And these guys are no slouches. I mean, all the other scientists and medical people vouch for them. But their job is to give the facts, figures and advice. And then the government makes decisions. And the essence of government at a time like this is clear communication clear especially to 65 million people 65 million people you have to be extremely clear not on the one hand on the other hand on the yes and this i mean uh, even even yesterday i mean you know the the health secretary completely cocked up what the regulations are supposed to be even he you know said things that made absolutely no sense so added to a latent fear is a sort of, on the other hand, that latent fear is increasingly smothered with the sort of, well, I won't catch it, as I can say, a complacency. But that in turn is bolstered by the uh, ineffectiveness or the seeming ineffectiveness of government to make a simple message. And indeed, you know, with in, in, in rolling out 
the necessary equipment, finding it, rolling it out, getting it, being on time, anticipating events. It has been, in my view, absolutely hopeless. And uh, will those chickens come home to roost? No, I don't think so, because people want to trust their government in a time of crisis. Uh, I don't know the situation in Ireland. I only talk to my mates and my family there. But over here, the Taoiseach speech on St. Patrick's Day was relayed heavily, uh, which is unusual. And it was a tour de force. All that is leadership. I mean, you know, it might seem like it's, it's politicking, but it's not. I mean, it's, it's, it's what you're meant to do. After a very serious election for the government classes to put this stuff aside and, you know, uh, shoulders to the wheel along with the country, it's, um, it's correct and proper. You know, good mm. to see. Mm. But an object lesson in how it should be done, especially for this crowd over here. We've got the daily press conference, but, you know, nobody can understand what... They understand what Valence and Wishy is saying, but as soon as you get some, you know, seriously inadequate minister you've never heard of, who's probably just there because he backed up Johnson during the Brexit thing, and they either are getting not understanding what they're being told by their science and medical advisors or by their PR people they're getting this. I don't know, but it's, I mean, I don't know if you go online, but nearly every comic is making fun of this, you know. And, of course, Piers Morgan on uh, the morning shows, uh, the TV shows in the UK, and Piers Morgan is generally not liked amongst the media classes, you know, but... I have to say, and like, you know, I have to say, I find him a very good journalist. His interviews uh, on CNN and, you know, even, even his editorship of the Daily Mirror, while, you know, tabloid and fraught with lies and other things, was um, in those terms, you know, up to the mark. But his handling of this and his, his skewering of these inadequate ministers has been what everybody's talking about because he is articulating what people are thinking. And of course, now all the ministers are forbidden from going on um, his show in the morning, which is absolutely pathetic. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, people just laugh about it now. Uh, they socially distance. They stand, they stand apart in the queues for the supermarket. Um, the supermarkets are sort of handling it okay. Uh, certainly where I live, the streets are more or less bare. Um, we go out for a walk. Um, there's very few people around. I think people stagger their thing. But it's a small town. Um, you know, uh, people who've been in London, in various parts of London, you know, most of central London is deserted. So, uh, but out and around, you know, the kind of uh, outer ring. I'm not sure the people are taking or, or, or being as uh, as strict as they as they ought to be. But I I don't know because I'm not there. Of course, and I'm half afraid to ask you about Trump and America. I mean, what's going on over there is almost worse in a way, isn't it? <laughs> Your silence says it all. <laughs> I mean, what to say? I mean, the, the man is a vulgar fool, and he is again utterly incapable of the job. One of the oft-cited 
problems with this deeply flawed individual is that he has no empathy whatsoever. He's never displayed empathy for another human. And that's not a push-on. There's some problem. There's some problem. He is extremely infantile. We know that. And he's useless. He is completely useless at his job. People say, oh, well, there's the economic bump. The economic bump is trillions of dollars of debt that he's pumped into the system, largely for the benefit of the wealthy. That's true. That isn't some old lefty, which I'm not, um, going on. America would be saddled with this debt for generations. Now, America can handle that because it's the reserve currency of the world. It'll print its own books called quantitative easing, but in another some other name. And people will buy more American debt until they stop doing it. So he is radically useless, but he is a measure of the age. And you can see that dismay in the wake of the banking crisis and austerity and those people. You saw it in Ireland. You know, if you're under 30 and you can't get a house or you're struggling, of course you react. And uh, you saw it. The Brexit argument is largely to do with that. Uh, the Trump argument is largely to do with that. You know, it's all about people not understanding the elites and being disconnected, etc. Fine. It's a valid argument, and politics was incapable of dealing with it in the normal turn of events. So they elected outliers. But those outliers, when confronted with a genuine existential crisis like COVID, fell at the first hurdle. And you're seeing that in the United States. It's tragic. Thank God that it's a federal system where the governors can make their own um, regulations. But again, the balance now is, as you know, as they terrified to see China coming out of COVID and, you know, running to, you know, pumping up the economy again. But I can't see the fear of that because if there's no one to buy Chinese stuff, then the China's, Chinese economy has nowhere to go. And when you have 34% unemployment in America and the state paying for those wages, there's no lacks money. There's no loose money around to buy Chinese goods. So the Chinese economy will still limp along until they've got the West up and running again. So I think it's a stillborn fear. As for Trump, he pretends suddenly that he's sorry for the tens of thousands of deaths, but um, he's doing very little to help those people or help the states. Um, and it is specifically, this is where you need to be ultra-presidential. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can I bring you right back to your, I think your favourite subject, or certainly one of them, and that is uh, the Boomtown Rats. And I had a listen, a proper listen today, before this interview, to uh, Citizens of Boomtown, the album, and <laughs> it's pretty good, you know. <laughs> like, I love the opening line, you know. Oh no, another shit Saturday night. <laughs> it's just, just great. And um, uh, is it Monster Monkeys? Like, that's like great stuff, you know, really good. Yeah, it would really be pretty good. It's a work of genius. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> but uh, I, I, tell me about like all of that coming back together again after 36 years. Well, we didn't really... It's a regrouping. I, you know, I think this band only makes sense in times of chaos and uncertainty. As in the, in the film Citizens of Boomtown, you know, he says... It's, the glorious noise of the Boomtown Rats. 
that noise is certainly what I wanted to hear a couple of years ago um, when Gary and Simon said, look, you know, let's go and do the Isle of Wight. We've been offered that gig. And I was very ambivalent. I, 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 just, I won't engage in nostalgia. You know, there's no rear view mirror in this car. I, uh, well, yeah, I didn't know. But when the minute that this group of people started playing again and made that glorious noise, it really did make sense to me. Uh, there was a deep satisfaction that, you know, this was, I think, 2013. And we are knee deep in, in all the, the crap of the world collapse, economic collapse, and hundreds of thousands, uh, millions unemployed, countries humiliated, you know, hundreds of thousands losing their homes and families and committing suicide and wars resulting and millions on the move to escape the terror of those wars or just to find a new job. And what did we do? <laughs> we, we elected fools to mediate this chaos. We put up borders and barbed wire and barriers and we let them drown in oceans so they couldn't get to us. And that was our reaction to it. Why we hunkered down into a life of low wages and unfunded social services. So, of course, when the rats cranked up and made that glorious noise, of course it made sense to me to sing Rat Trap or Looking After Number One. Of course, when I sang Banana Republic, it was no longer about the finely mature Republic of Ireland, it was about the infantilism now of the American Republic, and that, um, as I say, vulgar fool in the White House. So all these things made sense at that time, just like they did in 1976 for the exact same reasons, when there was no hope, no future offered to the young of Ireland whatsoever, none, zero, and we all had to get out. And, you know, when the English economy was, I think, 27% inflation in 1976, 27%, that's zero economy. And so it offers its young no future. When New York in 1976 is bankrupt, where you can't drive on the streets because of the potholes, where there is no police or fire service because they won't work because they're not getting paid. And when the mayor of New York appeals to the president of America and the president of television says New York dropped dead, then of course you're going to get the Ramones in New York. Of course you're going to get the Sex Pistols and the Clash in London. And of course you're going to get the Boomtown Rats in Dublin. You know, of course you are. We didn't know about each other, but it was all singing from the same hymn sheet. And so, you know, that's why that music made sense then. That's why it demanded a change, which, of course, happens come 79. But um, and it's why, as I say, it makes sense now why the record you listened to this morning made sense to you. It didn't sound out of time. You know, mm -hmm. it sounded... That's just as acceptable to me now. And that's why, because it's almost like that's where we need to be. That's where we need to exist. I don't have to do the rats. You know, I've made seven solo albums that do really well. The solo band does really well. But someone has always to sing the blues for the now. And if that falls to the Boomtown Rats, or if that's what we want to do, then so be it. Now, I know that there's, there's loads of great music there now. 
lots of it. Um, great songs, great artists, but they don't have the currency of the past because the rock and roll period is over. It ended in about, what, let's say, 56, and if we're kind, 2006, but in reality, 2000. And that's when social media came to the fore. Rock and roll was the social media of our time. And through it was translated and mediated all the ideas of our time, all of them, social, political, cultural, economic, whatever. And that's how we learned about and put a frame of reference around what we were all experiencing. That isn't what happens with music anymore. Music has gone back to essentially its function of earlier times, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Superb music, great songs, great tunes, but that's what they are. They're a background noise to your life. Some tunes you adhere to because they represent a moment for you and they'll always do that for the rest of your life. Some are just great tunes, some you want to dance to, but they're not specifically the spine of the culture. And so that moment began to pass. We had done Live Aid. That seems in retrospect to be the point at where all the promise of rock and roll was tied up, given that nearly every one of the greats of rock and roll was on that stage at one part mm. of the day or, or another. And mm -hmm. uh, some that hadn't existed for a while, they reformed to be on that stage. Led Zeppelin, The Who, The Beach Boys, Black Sabbath, Duran Duran, all reformed to be on Live Aid. So it seemed to sum up that uh, in the face of a moment where uh, Margaret Thatcher who was the prime minister famously said there is no such thing as society. Live Aid was the exact opposite proof of that. And um, in the face of Reaganomics or Thatcher economics, not only was there such a thing as society, but society cared enough about others whom they would never meet or see. And uh, so it summed up lots of the promise of rock and roll. It kicked against what we are told we should be. And it turned out that maybe John Lennon was not as naive as some suspected. It turned out that maybe all you did need was love. And so I didn't know what the Boomtown Rats could say or do beyond that. And not only that, we had lived for 10 years at the very white hot point of rock and roll. And I don't think we had anything left to say. It began to stress, especially when you had a new generation of people who had other things to say to another generation, maybe better ways of saying it, newer way of looking. We couldn't suddenly become Boy George having been the rats. Or, or some other look. So I think that our time had been and gone, and 10 years is a long time. Remember, of course, I'm not comparing us in any way with the Beatles, but they did everything that we know about them in six years, and yet they're a lifetime. So whatever records we made sum up those 10 years. And then we ended, uh, uh, I think, correctly and properly at the Irish event called Self-Aid, because unemployment was catastrophic in Ireland. And in the wake of Live Aid, some RTE producers thought it good to do something for the unemployed in Ireland. And all the Irish bands showed up, of course. And that was, where, that was the time for us to say thanks. Back in Ireland, we would soon be unemployed ourselves. 
we were unemployed when we started looking after number one our first ever hit the first time first thing you ever heard me say anything was the world owes me a living that was the first time and i wrote it on a dole we'd taken our name from woody guthrie the great poet of impoverishment and the dispossessed and now here we were singing back to those who had no jobs trying to get money for them when we would be unemployed having had been unemployed so that was the time that was right and because we'd led this led this high-pitched life and we developed our own personal lives in the shadow of that things that happened to me that needed to be expressed in a different way and maybe the rats weren't the right way of doing that maybe I needed to go off and find another way of to I'm saying this retrospectively, I was nervous as anything that now these people that I'd only ever met, made music with, they were gone. So what did I do now? But off I went and, and did it. And so that wasn't the time for it. This was the time for a louder, brasher, more pointed music. And uh, that's what the rats do. And Bob, you... you pretty much wrote I think nearly all the songs for the rats like and we spoke about this earlier about writing and so on I just wonder like would you have liked to have had a co-writer you know like the Lennon and McCartney thing or the Jagger and Richards like was there a lot of pressure on you to produce another hit hit after hit from the early days yeah there was intense pressure I mean it was it was not fun it's much more fun now uh, being in the band than it was then because you were so you know the pressure on me specifically so you're the singer so you have to be the performer and the singer uh, and the front man there are three different jobs then because you're all of those things because you're the writer as well you have to do all the interviews because that's what the interviewers want to do so aside from the traveling and everything else and the non-stop pressure to not just write more songs but to write hits mm. you know if the next one isn't at X number, it's over. So they, they were the times that were in it. You know, the others just didn't write songs. It's it's like I can't play guitar like Gary. I can't play drums like Simon. So I could write tunes and they couldn't. I mean, Pete emerged as being the guy that I could, you know, do things with. He'd come to me with like, uh, like clockwork, that great bass line, you know, um, and and the same with Banana Republic. I mean, they're both co-writes with Pete. Um, you know that. Yeah, reggae almost. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is, and it's uh, <clears throat> so. You know, the, the minute I heard that, I'd spin off, and I I did. I wrote the chords to the verse and that, and and then in Clockwork, he had most of that, but I did the middle eight and, and the words and melody and stuff. And it was very natural, and it still is. So on, on um, uh, Citizens of Boomtown, I think, uh, yeah, you're right. So if there's 10 songs, I wrote, you know, I don't know, seven and a half of them. I mean, you know, there's there's about four or five co-writes with Pete and the rest are mine. So, yeah, it's easy with him, you know. He'll, he'll just give me a bit of music and say, is there anything there? And, you know, there, is, there either is, there isn't. I go away and I listen really loud, driving in the car, singing up stuff to it. And there may be one bit that really works. And I say, let's let's go with that and take it forward. So, or sometimes I just have a, it's an okay. I, I think there's something there uh, in the song. 
and if scratch lyrics like you know like you said um trash Grand baby it's oh no another shit saturday night and i was singing that over the chords you know so what is this and i i'll, un- I'll, I'll unpack it it's, it's like um picking at a loose thread on your jumper, you know, pull on it and the thing will unravel. So you need to do that in your head. No, it's an easy working relationship with him. And of course, subsequently, he became a great producer. I mean, Pete has produced number one album, well, you know, Tricky, all the trip-hop stuff, That that's Pete. You know, number one albums in, in, in Europe and, and stuff like that. And of course, he produced all, all this. And he's produced about three or four of my solo stuff, which have got, you know, done well and won awards and stuff so we've worked together now for whatever 42 43 years and it's not you know it's not even thought of as a relationship because we know each other so well he doesn't put up with my bollocks and i don't put up with his we've been through terrible domestic things together where i hope i've supported him and he certainly helped me along so um it's 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 good and we get in each other's nerves and then we don't um but uh he's a good guy he's a good bloke he's a good guy to work with you've also got a book out called tales of boomtown glory which is a kind of anthology of your lyrics how did that come about bob faber and faber uh asked me could they do a collection of the lyrics which was very flattering because they'd done two others only, um, Radiohead and Kate Bush. And so that's flattering because they're great. Mm. Uh, also, Faber and Faber was famously where T.S. Eliot was one of the editors. So that was cool as well. And um, so given that we had an album, given that we had a movie and videos coming, this was perfect. This kind of this brought everything around to the present, just like the movie does, just like the book does. It brings it to the pointed end of the album, Citizens of Boomtown. So I, I, you know, they got all the lyrics together and they asked me, would I write something about them? And I said, yeah, but not that many, because one, I don't have time. But um, I did a few essays about the empirical songs, the ones that I know exactly where, when I was, when I wrote them and what they were about. So let's take Rat Trap. Uh, so obviously written in Ireland when I was re- working in an abattoir in Bulls Bridge because I couldn't get any other job. And it's about um, just looking around while I was there at the people there who were just as trapped as any of the animals about to be slaughtered. So this wasn't just a slaughterhouse of animals. This was a, an abattoir of human dreams and uh i wrote directly about the people that i that i worked with and i learned that from van morrison and uh, you know dr feelgood really write about your immediate environment uh you don't need to go winging off in your head it's all there just just look so that's what i did i didn't know i was writing a song to be honest with you I just wrote notes and sort of like little stories. But Rat Trap was kind of fairly complete as a story. And then when I had the melody, it was the last track we recorded for Tonic to the Troops. I didn't even know it was a song, but the producer, Mott Lange, said, we need, we, there's one, we're missing something here. We're missing the big album song. You must have something. I said, I don't have anything. And he said, he said, play me any scratch you've got. 
So I had these chords, G, D, E minor, bam, bam, bam. And uh, I was singing a melody around those. And he kept saying, what happens next? What happens next? Where do you go? Where do you go? And he was pushing me in a room in Holland where we were recording and pushing me. And as I went, I praised the, 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 the little story I'd written. And that, that, that was the song Rat Trap. I had no idea it was a song. I had no idea it was a single. And I had no idea it would be number one, never mind the first ever Irish rock and roll number one or the first ever new wave number one, but it was. And we knocked uh, Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta. <laughs> I remember it well. <laughs> yeah. Third slot. So, you know, I mean, the, the charts were constipated at that point, and the Boomtown Rats were the necessary laxative, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. so uh, that was that, you know. Uh, and it was much to my surprise, like, you know, I, I, I wrote She's So Modern on purpose to get into the top ten, because I was told, unless you have another top ten, bands right. over, you know. And uh, so that, that was the pressure all the time. And don't forget, you were making an album a year at least. And you had to have three hit singles a year at least. You, I mean, okay, it was a lot of pressure, but I don't think you'd have, have had it any other way, would you? You don't know is the thing, Mark. You really don't know. I mean, you, you're, you're young and you're looking at the Sex Pistols and Elvis Costello and the Ramones and the Clash and you're going, what are they doing? What are they doing? And you're going, God, that's so good. That's so good. It's so much better than us. And here comes this new crowd, the police or something. And like, what are they doing? And and so all the time it's that. And you're worried about the gigs, you know, and, and, and um, selling out faster. And the tickets are more expensive and the reviews are better. And then it's quickly get to Australia, quickly get to Japan. Right, 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 right. Do the interview. Get up on stage. You're knackered. You've driven like 600 fucking miles and slept in a van and like get up on stage and be a rock star, you know. And uh, it is a young man and young woman's game. We produce stuff in all of that chaos and and, and stress that stood the test of time. I mean, um, things I remember, we won album of the year for Tonic, our second album. You know, uh, I remember just sitting at the table. And there were these hands suddenly pressed into my shoulder blades like a massage. And this voice said, well done, you guys. And it was an instantly recognizable voice. And we all just looked up. And it was a beetle, you know. Wow. It was partly telling us, you know, what? Eight months out of Dunleary, you know, a beetle <laughs> telling us. And then he said, that song, me and Howard Hughes. He said, who wrote that? And I said, I did. He said, that's a good one. That's that's the guy who wrote Eleanor fucking review. <laughs> yes. What? Yeah. You know, yeah. you my songs, you know. Mm. I mean, uh, you couldn't make it up. Literally, you couldn't make it up. Yeah. And like, you know, so uh, the reason that popped into my head is because, you know, I've been sorting stuff out here. And actually that, that, that photograph of Paul and Linda at our table just popped out. Yeah, so cool. It was cool. Very cool. Bob Geldof chatting to me from his home in Kent, and my sincere thanks to Bob. (laughs) 
And thank you for listening. And before I go, I just want to briefly mention that today I heard a beautifully delivered piece of radio from BBC Radio 4's Today programme. It was the wife of American singer-songwriter John Prine, who you've heard me mention on these podcasts and who died only a few weeks ago from COVID-19. His Irish wife, Fiona Whelan Prine, told the story of John's last few months and weeks and how when they returned from a trip from Europe in February, they were both tested for coronavirus in March. And while John's test was not conclusive, she tested positive, with neither of them displaying any symptoms. John subsequently did develop symptoms on the night before Fiona finished her quarantine. All I can do is recommend that you listen to this six-minute piece. We'll post a link to it on our SoundCloud, Facebook and Instagram feeds. I've been meaning to thank a couple of people who regularly give me feedback and generally help me out with editing. They're Ian Ring and John Ryan. Thanks, as always, to series producer Pat Hannon. Until next time, stay safe and stay sane. Stay Safe, Stay Sane is a High Wire 21st Century Vox production. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane.